it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to the Situation in the Story podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moore, a queer writer and educator living in Denver. I'm here to bring you the story behind the story. When I read a book that intrigues me, no matter the genre, I want to know more. Who is this writer? What challenges and mundanities led them to create something so profound? More than craft and publishing stories, I'm here for the in-between. The ways our various identities and intersectionalities inform our stories and make us who we are. The ways we transform barriers, borders, and boundaries into art. Why do you write? So the reason that I write is because I'm an immigrant. I had never thought that I would be a writer. Um, I've, I've actually always been afraid of the idea of that very raw creativity. And I was terribly in awe of writers. I had a very close friend at university who was a poet who kind of go into this liminal place where he hardly knew where he was as he was composing his poem. And I think that's probably the most uh, extreme, maybe even arcane form of writing. But, um, but I just felt so in awe of these people. And so I never thought that I would. But when I came, and it was such an extraordinary experience, I, I, just, I had all of this building up in me, and I, I wrote copious letters home, and I wrote emails, I kept a journal, and it just wasn't enough. I needed to find a way to synthesize it. And so I tried to pull all of those elements together into a book, and I found I didn't have a clue how to do it. <laughs> So um, I looked for some, some creative writing programs and I found the most gorgeous one here in Baltimore. It's at the Baltimore, at the University of Baltimore. And it's a double major, so it's creative writing and publishing arts. And so for the, so it's a three-year program. I took four years because of working full-time. And, um, and so not only do you write the material, but you also design the book and you publish it, self-published obviously, but so you go through the whole process. And so that first book, which is called Beyond the Baobab, um, was really a collection of essays very particular about my, my immigrant experience and the process mm. of coming. And the last essay in that book was sort of like a love letter to Sarah. And I knew that I would want to go on and, and develop that and write about her in more detail. And so I started writing because I had all of this bottled up inside me. And now I write because I've realized that it's, it's the best way to synthesize not only an enormous experience, like reinventing yourself in another country as well mm. as a citizen of another country, but because it's, it, clarifies how one feels about things, how we think about things. And so now, 
having come to writing sort of by the back door, I find that if I haven't written, say, for a week, I start to clutch and, mm. and in a mess. And so, so now it's become something that is really necessary. And so that now is why I write, because it helps me synthesize life and experience and thoughts and everything that's going Yeah. I that's a great answer I'm like sometimes I get similar answers from different writers like I write because I have to but the way you talk about synthesizing such an enormous experience especially the experience of like you said reinventing yourself in a new country yeah that's huge so your book old new worlds is kind of like a tale of of two women's intertwined sense of place and identity which was published this last winter um for those who have not read it can you take us kind of through through it briefly what's it about describe it sure so i think your word of the twining is is the right one and it was strange how i came to this book because my original thought had been to expand the essays into a full length non-fiction book about immigration and my process mm. but that was taking some time to happen and I didn't want that to be the only book I ever wrote and so I started working on Sarah's story because as I said earlier I knew I'm back to and the more I worked on her story not only did I start to love her but I also started to find these points of connection and points of intersection. Right at the outset, the reason that we both immigrated was because of the men we married. Mm. And neither of us would have immigrated if we hadn't married those particular men. And so that was the starting. But then also just how, how one does feel that sense of who am I now? Am I, am I this person who lives and exists in this country? Or am I that person who grew up in that country? And, and in exploring that in my own story, I kept on finding those resonances in hers as well. And so I then decided to pull these two books together and, and looked for clearer points of intersection. And so it is Sarah's story leaving England in 1815 with her missionary husband sailing to the southern of Africa, trekking across land to the eastern Cape of South Africa, where they had this mission station and where they were instrumental in making it possible once again for the indigenous people to own land and to be self-sufficient. And so although there is, of course, that whole brush of colonialism and how that feeds in and impacts how I feel about their experience. Nevertheless, they did do some really good work for these indigenous people who had been very dispersed and decimated mm -hmm. in the century since the country had been colonized. And so there was that story. And then my story from where Sarah planted me at the southern tip of Africa and my need to leave that place and, and also looking at what makes someone an immigrant. Mm. Why do some people feel the urge to go and others won't? So I was very close to my late brother, who 
never dreamt of leaving. He wanted to stay in South Africa and make us. And mm. that is exactly what he did. I had this impulse to go. And Sarah, for whatever reason, had this impulse to go. And so the book really is this dialogue about our experiences. And, and intertwined with that is just how I found her, how I was able actually to find her. Yeah. I, uh, throughout the book, my, I know that you had a, such a strong connection to her, but I still wonder why Sarah. It seems like there were so many family members whose potentially trail you could have wound yourself down. Why Sarah? Sarah and, um, yeah. and for those who don't know, who is Sarah to you? Oh, all right. So, <laughs> so, so Sarah is my great, great grandmother. And so it was her story because it needed to be a woman. I felt that I, I wanted to and had the urge to relate to a woman. And I knew that the line came from her down to my mother. My mother's maiden name was Barker. So I knew that that was how the line had come down to our family. I wasn't absolutely sure how at that point. But she was where it started. She was the one who planted our extended family in Africa. And, and so she, she was the one that, who, who really called to me across these two centuries. And my initial source, my immediate source, was her husband, George. Mm. And he's the one that everybody talks about. You know, he crops up in, he's quoted in various books of the time. His diaries are still preserved in a museum in Eastern Cape. He was, he was certainly a figure, but um, although I admired him, I wasn't drawn to him in that same visceral and emotional way that I was. And, and the more I read his diaries and I was looking for links to her and connections to her, because I don't have anything of hers other than two signatures and two portraits, I, I just felt her life filtering through and and it was almost like a game of hide and seek. And so maybe that was also part of the compulsion. That mm. I I wanted to I wanted to get behind what was the obvious story and actually be able to discover her and and give her life again in some mm. about this time last year I started digging into my own family history which is not easy as you know it feels like a yeah like a like a game of hide and seek but um there's something so powerful about it especially when so I grew up on the east coast of the United States in New Jersey not far from Maryland and um I don't have a real strong connection to my identity there um, my my father's parents and grandparents were from Ireland and Scotland, and my mother's family was from Italy. So I started going further back and further back, and it's so interesting how you're you play with imagination. You have to play with imagination, right? So as I'm reading your book, even early on, I'm thinking to me, I want to call your book almost speculative nonfiction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, does that does that ring true or like what what do you call your book genre wise? I call it biographical memoir. Mm. 
But speculative nonfiction, I think, is also a great term. And I think you know, this book is, is difficult from the point of being able to define it. And that is part of its problem, uh, it, or could be part of its problem. But I think in this day and age, the publishing industry, I think, is much more prepared to experiment with these gray areas yes. where it's not necessarily historical fiction, although it's part of that. It's not necessarily memoir, although it's part of that. It's not only biogra biographical, although it's partly that. It's, it's this amalgam of things. And I was sort of, just, there were some people early on uh, who, who, who read some early drafts who were quite keen for me to decide either make it one thing or the other and and that didn't feel as if that would have captured the whole story yeah so i'm glad you didn't that's one thing i love about this book it's 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 memoir and it's it's almost you know journalism and so basically what you did was piece together your great great grandmother's and her family's story using her husband's journal entries for Correct. the most part, yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> I mean, um, and then it's written, it's structured, kind of bounces back, but back and forth between her story and your story. But it's like written in her story is kind of written in third person, the way fiction might be. And I love it. I just love that about it. I'm glad that you didn't uh, cave to those editors. <laughs> it needs to be this or that. No, like I'm a I'm a nonfiction writer very much drawn to the more experimental kind of hybrid work. So oh. I really appreciated that. Oh, I'm glad. Um, how long did that process take? It took a long time. As I was describing earlier, the fact that it was two books to begin with and that right. I, I centered them down into one. And then once I had decided on that format, I suppose it took two years would, and it could have been longer, I think. Um, so I, I worked really quite concentratedly once I knew where it needed to go. But as well as looking at George's diary, which I was able, luckily, to access online to a great extent, but I also felt I needed to go and see it and actually page through it. I needed to go to where the mission station was. And unfortunately, it's so much in ruins that mm -hmm. it will probably not exist for much longer. I wanted to see her gravestone. I needed to go to the archives of the Londonary Society. I found some of his original letters in Cape Town archives, and I needed very much to do that on the ground research as well. And so that took quite a lot of time. And I also went to where George's family came from in Essex and went to the church where he grew up and went to look at the adjacent graveyard and see all these barkers dating back to the hundreds. And so I, I did a lot of that. It felt necessary just to have a sense of what it's like to breathe the air in those places mm. and smell the air and hear it. And uh, even just as I was leaving London, just driving up through Middlesex so that I knew where she had been a servant. I didn't know the exact address, but I knew the street and I could just look at those row houses and get a sense of what her life had been like there. And so that very practical research took quite a lot. And then 
even just writing the book, I don't know how you work, Chris, when you're writing, but um, I'm not someone who does all the research and then I settle down to write. Mm -hmm. I will write and then if I need to know what it was like to travel on a tall ship in 1815, then I'll go and research that when I need it. Or if I need to know what women were wearing in 1817, I, then I'll go off. And, so it was, it was very much a piecemeal research in that sense. And, and that is, in a way, maybe you agree with me, one of the most wonderful parts of writing is just going down those those avenues and, and just finding all this wonderful new experience. Yeah. And, um, and so by the time I came to the end of the book and I compiled the bibliography, which turns out, I think it's like four pages, I was astounded. I had not realized how much I had actually done research because it didn't feel like that when I was doing it. Mm. Um, but all of that, it obviously takes time. And, and then... Because my primary source was George's diary and I had nothing from hers, I needed, I think I did eventually four drafts, and I think I needed every single one just to bring me closer to her. And you were talking earlier about writing her story in third, third person, and I wanted to use a very close third-person voice. I even experimented with first-person for her, yeah. I felt the third person was right, but very close, so that nothing that she hasn't experienced is written about uh, from in her story. Uh, and and I needed I needed to keep doing that to make it more and more her story, not not George's. Yeah. So I think those are the kinds of things that take time. So probably from beginning to end, I would say four years. Wow. Yeah. So her point of view and her story, which how much of it would you say is speculation? I mean, there, I mean, the, the, the scenes are so detailed down to, down to the most finite. And I wondered as I was reading, you know, did she know that or does, is she imagining that kind of, yeah. How, how much of it is imagined? How much of those details did come from the diaries kind of thing? So the way that I started was to read the diary and physically with a yellow highlighter, I marked every place where she would have been. Mm. And so I didn't make up anything that didn't happen. But sometimes um, I could take like half a sentence in the diary and make an entire scene mm. from it. Like when she when she spills um, when she spills caustic soda on her feet when she's making soap that's that's like half a sentence but it it made me think this is a way to show what it was like to live you know you couldn't go to whole foods right and pick up some soap right <laughs> everything that happened had to be manufactured by them yeah. and it just seemed to be a way of creating her her life in in a kind of intimacy he would he he made a note of every single birth and some of the christenings so those i i could take directly from the diary and he would say you know that she had had a little birth or that she had lost consciousness or mm. so i could use those kinds of things but his writing 
is very factual. It was, you know, it was written for the missionary society directors to read. So it was not a work of art. It was a factual record. And so he doesn't really go into um, emotional thoughts or anything like that. So anything of that is purely spectacular. And I had no dialogue to work from other than his letters. And so quite often I would transcribe his letters and imagine her part, her side of that conversation. But but I really, ha I was really in a position of needing to and wanting to use my quite a lot to return. Yeah, the dialogue was, that was another big question. But did you have to research the language, um, the ways of speaking from, you know, the, that time and that place um, in order to create the dialogue? And how did you do that? Yes. So again, I was helped by his letters Mm -hmm. particularly his personal letters, the letters that he wrote to his sisters and his parents. Um, I don't have any letters that he wrote to her, but, but those personal letters give a sense of, of the structure of his language uh, and to some extent in the diary. Um, but then I think we are lucky that we have a writer like Jane Austen who was writing exactly at this time. Right. And so... I could I could just try to conjure up her dialogue and get a sense of it that way. And I think things like not contracting, not saying wasn't, but saying was not. I think right. those tiny little uh, formalities make a difference too. Yeah, you could I could tell as a reader that a lot of time and attention was put into that. Um, so movement, immigration, travel all huge themes in the book, right? Uh, I actually want to read from the opening of chapter eight, if that's okay. Okay. Oh, um, I'll read it first, and then I'll tell you why I was drawn to it. Um, it says, falling in love with a country is no different, really, from falling in love with a person. There is the exhilarating tumble of sharing and discovery and the click of finding how alike you are, even as you marvel at how uniquely special he is. And just as there is also the rather more pragmatic side of learning that he dislikes cucumber, that he doesn't take sugar in his coffee, that he likes his socks folded, not rolled, there are the mundane aspects, like applying for a social security number and opening a new bank account, of settling into the relationship with your new country. There was no doubt in my mind that I was in love with America. It had been love at first sight. I love that. So I'm a travel writer. I'm an avid travel writing reader and i can't remember ever reading kind of like your descriptions of the reorientation that comes with um being in new places is i can relate to your descriptions the most the way that you continue on after that and talk about just kind of all those little let me see um like how you feel like you're playing at living somewhere. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I love it. So how I'm curious now, even after having finished the book, how, how do you define home and how do you identify with the place that, I mean, I think you, you've lived on in something like 20 something cities. Right. Right. Yeah. Right? yeah. There were 20 something homes. Um, homes. Yeah. Maybe it may be sort of uh, half a dozen or eight cities yeah 
yeah, I'm super interested in um, the idea of identity and place, and I write about it a lot. So I'm curious as to how, how you know, now, how do you identify or how do you define home? So it was a bit of an existential issue for me for a while. Yeah. <laughs> because I just had no idea. And, and I went, I felt as if I didn't belong any because here, the minute I start speaking, I'm, I'm other. And, um, but if I, if I go back to South Africa, there are now huge gaps in my experience of the country and how it has traversed in the years since I lived there. So I, I felt quite um, disembodied for a while. Mm-hmm. And then I, I started to think, I probably don't have to. I think that they can both be home because truly they are. So America is home and this place, this house is my home. This is where I live with my husband and my cat and my books. And it's, it's, it's where I come back to at the end of a work day. And so this, this is my physical home. Cape Town is my spiritual home because it's where I came of age and because it remains the most exquisite city I've ever seen in my life. And because of the way it smells and looks and feels and the rhythms of the country, of, of the city, the way it looks, the way the vegetation of it, the fact that it's forests and, and mountains and sea all juxtaposed, it's, it's just an extraordinary place. But knowing that, I know that I can't go back to live there. And so... I, it doesn't mean that I don't love it and miss it and yearn for it and yearn for to live there. Um, but I, in fact, in a way, have the privilege of being able to lay claim to two places. And so the way that I think of it is that I, I am grounded in Africa uh, and that is where my experience really came to fruition. Mm. Uh, it's where I became, to a large extent, still the person that I am years on. Um, and America is the place where I synthesize it. This is the place where I make sense of what happened to me there. But, you know, an example is just when I was researching this book, I would keep on finding serendipitous links back to my heritage. I don't find that here. In this country, I'm 22 years old, right? Because that's how long I've lived here. So that is my experience here. So I know nothing about the Vietnam War. I know nothing about certain television programs. They're just these huge gaps in in my experience here. Um, But sort of by an amalgamation of the two, I, I... have some semblance of home, whether it's the physical one here in Baltimore or the spiritual one in Cape Town. And and I'm okay with that now. It took a long time to get to a point of accepting that. Um, and I think that that is really the core dilemma of immigrant. You know, where, where do you actually belong? And if I had, if I had, I would say that I don't know. 
I was struck by your attention in the book to kind of the nuance for of re, of reasons for immigration. I was often thinking about, you know, what is the difference between being a refugee versus a settler versus a tourist and how these delineations seem to be kind of created by white supremacy, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and you touch a lot on your, you touch a little bit on your relationship to what is often called white guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was wondering if you would speak a bit to what you think about Sarah and George's missionary work. I know you said earlier that they did bring positive things to the area. I have a, a background in the church. Um, when I was much younger, I easily could have been on a missions trip. And in my experience, you know, I thought we were we were doing good. We were there to heal. But I didn't understand, you know, the the uh, dynamics there as far as colonialism. So can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. So I think one has to look at it from both sides. So uh, George was a man of his time. And at that time, um, the British Empire was burgeoning. And um, there was no sense of forcing your thoughts and beliefs down someone else's throat is not the most politic thing to do. So um, it was it was kind of what it was. It was it was a given. And um, and within that mindset, he was British, he was of the British Empire, he never became uh, a the equivalent of a passport-holding African. Um, Within that context, I think that he and his fellow missionaries at that time and in that environment, I can't speak to India. I think it was more extreme there, but certainly within George's environment, um, I think that they were able to to do some good. Um, But... It also has to be said that from this vantage point, that is colonialism. It is um, quite supremacy, as you say, in its extreme form. It is, um, I mean, at its very least, it is arrogant beyond belief that you just assume that your way of doing things, your sets of beliefs, your way of dressing, that all of those things are superior. And, you know, in the book, I quote that letter that he wrote to his sister about, you know, you wouldn't believe how much they've improved in the 20 years I've been here. And, you know, now they are dressing better. And and who's to say, you know, who is he to stand in judgment on these people who, you know, have been living perfectly fine lives, in fact, until the Dutch settlers came in and brought their disease and decimated these tribes. So so from this vantage point, it's very common. I think that within the confines of imperialism, George was more um, socially minded, more liberally minded than many of his compatriots. But from our modern perspective, you can't sugarcoat it. He was... uh, he was a colonist and and he was taking his set of beliefs 
to people that he considered to be heathen and barbaric. Mm. And uh, so, so it's a very complicated issue. And particularly since, uh, you know, that, that early um, idea of we are the superior race uh, became the very worst example of solidified racism with the apartheid era. It was only four decades long, but I mean, the, the damage that it did is, is hugely fiery. And, and I think it had, obviously, its seed in these early times. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about your story. You grew up in apartheid South Africa, right? Yes, correct. Um, and then I was struck towards the end of the book where, or maybe the middle, where um, you come to America and you're surprised that we're still a racist country. Right. right. Um, and I, I am curious in a bit to know how you feel today about the political climate. But it was interesting to me. I hadn't really recognized that the U.S. ended slavery, I think, what was it, 30 years before? It's 30 uh, years after so, so, so in this country, it came to an end in the 1960s, and in the British Empire in the 30s. Okay. So, so, so 30 years before this country. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I, I, I interviewed another author um, from your, the same press that published your book, Serena Prabhasi. Oh, uh, yes. She talked a bit about, you know, you know, you could, you have this image of America and you get here and then after some time it's like, whoa, you know, maybe this is not what necessarily what we thought it would be like. Can you talk to the, speak to the kind of lines that you draw between apartheid South Africa and what you see, what you saw in Baltimore with Freddie Gray, even which you talk about in the book a bit. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So... I want to preface this by saying that I had the enormous privilege of living through eight years of the Obama administration. And that to me is what I believe America is and can be. And that's not to say that it was perfect. Of course it wasn't. There were issues that were not resolved. There were missteps. But there was a sense of promise and decency and and doing the right thing by as many of our citizens as we can manage. And he's the first to say that democracy is messy and not everybody is going to get what they want and it's not always going to be, you know, a clean as clean as it would be on the paper, you know, as a theory. So I want to preface it with that. But in January of 2007, when the anti-Muslim business started to come through and the immigration business. From that point and up until this very day, I feel as if I'm in apartheid South Mm. Africa again for many reasons. One is that you can't believe that people will respond this way to others. That, That there is no sense of Let's let's be our best selves for everybody's sake. You know that 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 just is not part of the equation. This business of demonizing other groups uh, just by how they look, how they worship, what their gender is, where they live, 
that to me makes no sense at all. It's, it's just horrifying. Um, and there are, are so many of these parallels. And another one is, so you can probably gather, I did not vote for the current administration. <laughs> and, um, and so there's that sense of futility, you know, like I, know, I, I always voted against the apartheid government, but I, my vote didn't count, you know, I, it just went nowhere. Um, and so there's that, that feeling of, of the tension of not being able to, to do anything about it. You just, you feel as if you are pulled this way and that by forces that are more powerful. So it was very difficult for me to, to come to terms with the, the, the Freddie Gray and all of those, all of these incidents that, that happen with horrifying hilarity. Um, and sure, the Freddie Gray happened during the Obama administration. It's not to say that, you know, that, that was a shield against these kinds of horrific events. Um, but it, it really was disheartening that, that the, the racial inequality and dysfunction in this country is not further along. And what is quite curious to me is that in a way in South Africa, it was so dire and, and so globally known that when it had to break down, it was sort of like ripping off the plaster. And we had, you know, Bishop Desmond Tutu's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Now, the country very sadly has not lived up to the promise of the Mandela years or the promise of its really outstanding constitution. Um, but even so, there is more of an openness about the endemic racial problem equality. I think the thing that I find the most unnerving in America is that it's kind of gone underground and metastasized. So it's woven more deeply into the society. And I think it's going to be that much more difficult to cut it out. And I think it's going to take a, a conscious effort as it has me, a conscious effort with every day, every decision, every exchange, every interaction, just, you know, taking stock of the anti-racist question. And I don't know if there are enough people in this country with the will to do that. I have to hope that there are, but, um, but it's, it's been very disheartening over these last four years to see that ugly underbelly exposed. I say this a lot um, in different interviews, but I, the Trump administration, you speak about the hatred being so underground and, and, and like uh, that it metastasized under the surface, which I think is absolutely accurate. And I think about how the Trump administration has brought it so clearly into the light, um, which in a way I think is necessary for the progress that we need to make. Do you think that, um, you know, a ballot box is a place for that change to happen? Um, or is it just a changing of the guard and here we go, it's going to carry on? I mean, when you think about Obama was, you know, we, we talk a lot about the symbols of Obama and he, he, he was presidential and he had empathy and he had, 
Um, but it was still an imperialist country, you know what I mean? So what do you, I don't know, I'm asking huge questions, but we have an election in 23 days now, is it? And I agree, it's very hard to be hopeful. And I don't know what I'm going to do if this, if it happens again, you know, <laughs> and we're in for another four years. I just can't imagine uh, the emotional toll that's going to take. Right. <laughs> uh, so I don't know what what is our role, especially as white white people, <laughs> you know, and is it voting? Is it more than that? I sort of to go back to Obama again, you know, when he was talking about fighting climate change, was it going to be this or was it going to be that or the other thing? He said all of the above. And I think, yes, so come November 3rd, that, and I've already done it, and I know it's there safely, and so I have already done and, and I think that that is an essential part. And the more people who vote, the more likely we are to have an outcome that has the potential to take the country forward. And I don't know if you've been taking part in New Yorker Festival, but um, AOC and Warren were on a panel together. And AOC was saying, you know, that she, she would love to have the privilege of thinking, okay, so now we are all Democrats within this this big tent of very different ideologies and thoughts. I would love to think that I have that battle ahead of me of trying to pull the party more to the left. And, and I think we do it in a range of ways. Yes, voting is essential. I think we also have to do this on the, on the most minute level. Every time you see somebody, I mean, we, our brains are very uncomfortable instruments from the point of view of condition. If we don't have this capacity in our brains to be able to store information, to go through it quickly, then every single time we make a decision, we'll take like half an hour to decide, <laughs> you know, do I do? So, so we have this very quick mechanism and that aids and abets something like racism too. So, I mean, so I get, I get onto the elevator. I will, and there's one other person. That person is black and heavily built and female and is dressed in such a way and her hair is so, I'm making all of these observations. Um, and that's not, that's not bad. That we, 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 you know, we have to exist in a way where we are taking cognizance of what is going on around us. And the idea of saying, oh, um, we're all the same and I, you know, I don't distinguish, I don't go with that. I think we must distinguish. Everybody is, is unique. Everybody has a different background and a different history and a different religiosity and a different... Uh, demographic, you know, it's all different, and that's all good. It's not something that we should shy away from and treat as other, and and that has to be shunned or or mitigated against. Um, and so, I think on that very very small level, every time you come across somebody, that person has to be an individual in their own right. It doesn't matter what their gender is. Their gender is 
valid, the color of their skin is valid, the way they choose to dress, the kind of music they listen to, all of that is valid. And, and if we can be respectful on that very small level and just hope that in some way that grows to a greater global or universal understanding. But, you know, yes, the ballot box counts, but so does speaking out about it, writing about it, and then taking care of our interpersonal reactions too. Yeah. Um, towards the end of your book, I started thinking of Sarah's countless pregnancies and births as kind of a metaphor for colonization almost. Did that, was that intended? Did you, did that connection occur to you um, as you were writing? It didn't, but what an interesting, and I think, you know, it was part of that whole um, era that was growing towards Victorianism, where women were just giving birth, where, where, colonialism was just spreading out. It just seemed to be this kind of burgeoning time and not necessarily always in a good way. Um, so, I, you know, I think, I, think it's, I think it's a fascinating. And, I mean, it is what it is. So she had these 16 pregnancies. Nine of her children survived her. So those are just the facts. But... But, you know, looking at it with hindsight and, and seeing that metaphor with me is fascinating. Yeah. Um, those births, I mean, that, that really made me think of um, how thankful I am to be a woman of the 21st century. Uh, it was unbelievable. And I just kept happening and happening. Right. And it was, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, one threat. <laughs> number nine and 10 and just the pain and agony and the grief and George being disconnected, emotionally disconnected from the experience. It, yeah. It just felt like, yeah, that's the perfect picture of what colonialism or the patriarchy is like. And yeah. I think it, I think it serves to tie those themes together in some way. And just, yeah, the, the idea of motherhood. It's just this, this, such this selfless, I don't know, endless giving. Right, it's really, right. really interesting. Huh. So 23 days. How are you feeling about all of that now? I mean, you talked about being surprised, you know, however many years ago when you got, or what was with, with Freddie Gray? What was that, 2012? Yeah, 15. 2015. I feel like, it has become so much more polarized just in those six years. I don't know what to expect, but like yeah. I said, I can't, I can't imagine going through this again. <laughs> it's true. And it's not, you know, I mean, it's, it's really the bigger picture too. It is, it is the person who holds the presidential office, but it's also the enablers around. And mm -hmm. in a way, I'm not sure who is, is more culpable at, at this stage because no one man could have could have set the country back so much alone right so um, so we'll just we'll we'll have to hope that the country does live up to her best self um, in the in the next month <laughs> yeah um. 
What would you say listeners should know about immigrants? So growing up, because my family came from England, I had always felt as if that was my home. And I had never actually visited America until before I came. To. But America is the right place for me rather than the UK for any number of reasons. And the main one is that she is such a conglomerate. So she is English and Dutch and Native American and African American and German. And, you know, there's just this, this incredible hodgepodge. And South Africa is a bit like that too. And so we wouldn't be the country we are without all of those elements. And so for somebody like Donald Trump to be trying to say that a white male is the true American is, it just doesn't bear any argument. I mean, it's, it's just, it's a complete and utter fallacy because of the indigenous, because of the Asians who have polluted so much, because of the Italians. Who have, I mean, this country is, and the Jewish people, this country is as rich as it is, and because of its diversity. And, and to, to regard immigrants as uh, other, and, and, you know, so if I'm walking down the street, I can pass, right? Mm-hmm. It's only when I speak that, that the difference becomes then apparent quite obviously. Um, and so I don't fit the demographic. I'm very close to a Persian woman. Um, and, and she, of course, is terribly under threat with this administration. Um, and I don't, I am blessed that I don't have that by the accident of how I know. Right. Um, but even I, I, you know, so I, my, I work in radio and the people who phone to complain about the AP re- news that I read, I'm not making it up, the <laughs> AP re- news that I read, they, they have said in so many words, I don't want some foreigner telling me about what's going on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is, there, there is this, this extraordinary attitude who come from the outside. I can't see it as anything but in. You know, no one element is, you know, take, take a potato. A potato is a sustaining meal. That's true. But add seasoning and a bit of cheese and a bit of butter as long as you're not vegan or a <laughs> bit of whatever else, you know, and it just becomes that much more fulfilling and rich. It's, you know, I think of this country as the most wonderful salad and it, it, for me, it's just unfathomable that immigrants would be regarded as a fit because of the reasons that I said, but also because to make the journey to another country doesn't come light. Mm. You, it, it requires a, a certain kind of tenacity and drive and commitment and follow through. And, you know, so people who have gone through that process and also then the acclimatization once you get here, you are, 
it, it's in your interests to bring your best self to the country. Yeah, it's, it's in your interests to, to make the country uh, the best that it can be for what you can contribute. So it's, it's very hard for me to understand and make sense of the immigrants are bad. Mm, me too. I think about, I think about it all the time. My, my family members are of that narrative and that belief and, you know, I'm definitely not. And I'm always thinking about, you know, what's the common denominator? Is it the very low value that this country places on education? Is it fear? Is it, I mean, the media, I don't know. It's, it's a lot to bear. (laughs) And so this is another parallel that I can draw with the apartheid. So the the apartheid regime was a marked minority um, governing the vast majority for four decades. What we know is happening in this country is that the wasps are becoming fewer. And I, I don't know the exact time frame at this stage, but there is coming very soon a time when the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant is it is not going to be majority. And so I have the sense of being pushed into a corner and feeling that their um, identity is somehow free. And if that happens, and it's allowed to happen, um, this feeling of threat and lashing out and hating anything that isn't like me, then, then the ground is ripe for a type of apartheid as we had in South Africa. And, and I think you know, it becomes absolutely essential to recognize that so that it doesn't become a... Uh, there's, you know, the, the idea of um, Latinx or African-American or Asian people being able to contribute in a, in a powerful and equal way to this, to this country, what does it matter what their ethnicity is, as long as the country is strong. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, that, and, and it, it doesn't mean that people who are descended from English colonists are going to go away. Of course they aren't. There will still be a mix of this country. And, um, and it, it would just, you know, continue to get more rich, as I keep saying. Mm-hmm. I hope we move forward. Oh. <laughs> Stay too. <laughs> yeah. well, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Um, oh, it's been I, such a pleasure. Yeah, I absolutely. I I can't say enough good about this book. Um, oh, thank you. So I'm gonna tell everyone to read it. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's so lovely to talk to a writer too, because yeah. you, know, you know and you understand. And you you read in a different way as mm-hmm. well as just knowing what goes into it. So right. So it was really a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you. Same here. Thanks so much.